like the way you speak as well is also quite like helps to helps to relax um um yeah helps calm calm my nerves Welcome to Pros and Coms. In this podcast, I talk to people about their personal and professional stories, uncovering the different ways and common themes of resonating with an audience. After all, communication is essentially storytelling. I'm Mari Janai, and today I'll be talking to Florence Lee. Flo is a paediatric registrar within the NHS, and her specialism in community paediatrics sees her navigating complex, emotionally charged situations every day when dealing with patients, relatives, and other agencies involved in children and young people's care. And key to providing that high standard of care? Effective communication. Okay, so Flo, I know you, but many people may not know you who are listening. So tell me a bit about yourself. Okie doke. Um, so thanks, Maz, for having me this morning. Um, so just a bit about myself. Um, I grew up in Hong Kong um, and I came to the UK to um, do my undergraduate uh, medical degree. And I've just been here since. Um, so currently training um, as a paediatrician um, in London um, and living uh, around here as well. Uh, and I do some work in sexual assault too. Okay. And that's me. Perfect, perfect little elevator pitch there <laughs> about yourself. So back to the beginning, what made you want to study medicine? Um, to be honest, I don't really have an inspiring story to tell you, but it was, a, it was a practical kind of combination of what I was good at, so kind of sciences and maths, like, um, you know, uh, yeah, sciences and maths and um, wanting to help people in some way, although at the time I wasn't really sure how. Um, but I think the push to medicine was really um, kind of family members' experiences of, of healthcare at the time of deciding. I think this was GCSE's A-level time. Um, so that was what kind of pushed me to that direction. Um, and actually, believe it or not, um, I wanted to pursue linguistics at the time because I had studied French and German uh, for over 10 years. Um, maybe something that I can, something I can get back into in the future. Who knows? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Well, that's essential for communication, which is what all this podcast is about. No, absolutely. So you decided on medicine and then what made you want to come to the UK? Um, so frankly speaking, it was um, it was so I had gone to a British school um, which was um, geared towards the British curriculum and I did the relevant A-levels. Um, and at the time, the entrance requirements for um, the Hong Kong medical, medical schools, there were only two. Um, and it was quite, um, you know, the, the entrance requirements were even higher than kind of Oxbridge um, requirements. And I didn't quite make the cut. So then um, applied via clearing and luckily got in. And now oh, I wow. wonder, I don't think I... I don't think I would have, yeah, I don't think I, w- I would have, um, uh, how to say, uh, I-, I don't think I could see it otherwise, really. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's my, I mean, I got to uni through clearing as well. And I think like, it's just at the time, it seems like, because I didn't get the grades. So I was just, I couldn't get in. And I thought it was like the worst thing in the world. Yeah. And then yeah. you get through and you're like, you have like a really good experience and the whole sort of degrees on paper and stuff doesn't quite translate into the experience you end up having in someplace else absolutely had you been to the UK before you moved for your undergrad yeah so um my uh parents so my dad um studied in the UK so um he had quite a few friends and um uh kind of distant family friends and family members as well here in the UK so we've been to visit when I was younger um, but nothing really to nothing in my early childhood to think oh this is a place I want to go for my studies yeah. if that makes sense but I do think you know things worked out in the end and um, yeah irrespective of the route but things worked out in the end I think absolutely and what was your impressions of living in the UK like when you first sort of started settling down oh um I mean 
first of all, I think it must be the the the, the culture shock. Um, yeah. You know, the food is completely different. Um, you know, the the um, hours of opening hours of like shops were different. Um, I think you know because I went to a British school, so the language barrier wasn't so much a thing. But I think the cultural differences was quite. Um, uh, was quite stark and you know needed a bit of time to get used to but um, other than that I think yeah those were the main things but I was really lucky you know when I um, when I was in my first year the hallmates that I had were you know an absolute cracking bunch so I think it helped to ease the transition um, much more than otherwise if, if, if I hadn't had those um, hallmates if that makes sense. Yeah and what was one thing which really like culture, <clears throat> excuse me, culturally, like what was the one thing you remember being like really surprised at in like a good way? You're like, oh my God, yeah. In a good way. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, because I actually went to, um, I studied in Sheffield. So, um, you know, you've got the stereotype of Yorkshire and everybody um, calling you, hey, love, hey, Chuck, hey, ducky, hey, you know, <laughs> um, kind of endearing terms. And I just wondered, you know, why is this random lady in the supermarket? Um, you know, calling me, you know, using such endearing <laughs> me terms. A farm so, animal. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And that was quite, um, that was quite a, a, a pleasant, um, pleasant surprise. Uh, but, you know, there's been many other positive experiences as well. So, um, yeah, yeah, I remember when I, I mean, I'm from the south of England originally, and then I moved up to Loughborough, which is where I met your amazing husband. Yeah. Uh, and um, my landlord at the time, he was obviously from like somewhere more north of Loughborough and he called me duck and I'd never heard that before. Like, <laughs> what? Why? What? Why is he calling me duck? Yeah. And I sort of like inferred it, but I was like, not even heard of that. And that's like, I was just like past the other side of the M25. That was like not even like abroad. Yeah, it was just in yeah, the UK. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, regional yeah. differences are funny, but yeah. they're quite cute, I think. No, absolutely. And I think um, very interesting in terms of the random kind of encounters you have with with strangers on the street. You know, I remember taking a, you know, hopping onto a bus as a student and, you know, bus drivers would just say, how are you today? Da, 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 you know, asking about your day. And I'm like, I don't know you, but, you know, my day was good. What about yours? Yeah. <laughs> and then, um, yeah but just um, interesting conversations struck with um, uh, strangers. But yeah, yeah definitely. Some of the best conversations, I reckon, for sure. Yeah, so you said you're in paediatrics now. Um, what? How did you get to specialising in paediatrics from starting off at undergrad as a medical student? Um, so I, um, to be honest, even before medical school, I kind of realised that I, I do enjoy working with children. So I think going into paediatrics came quite naturally for me. And then during undergraduate, I was quite interested and intrigued by um, kind of the surgical specialties where, you know, you can actually do things with your hands and get instant results. And, you know, the, the kind of instant gratification element was, was quite appealing. And then so during then I was um, hoping to pursue pediatric surgery, but then because of um, kind of job vacancies and, you know, applications and stuff, um, I ended up going into pediatrics. But overall, I think the population I work with was just a no-brainer it was it was um, quite natural for me um and uh yeah so in pediatrics you can become a consultant in general pediatrics or one of um, 15 uh subspecialties of, of peds um, and community pediatrics which is what I'm in now is something that I was quite lucky to have um uh, early on in my training um, and actually really um, developed a, a huge passion for it. and it kind of fit really well with my strengths and preferences within within my career but also within medicine um, and just a bit of a, a plug here but I think community pediatrics is absolutely amazing you know you've got such a huge variation of um, uh, you know areas and issues that it covers um, I do think there's something for everybody within the specialty um, you've got longer encounters with the children and family, so you actually get to know them a bit better. Um, you've got longer, um, kind of uh, better working hours compared to hospital medicine. Um, and a really big emphasis on, um, you know, a very all-encompassing, holistic approach to, to care. Um, and also another interesting bit is you've got lots of really cool opportunities working with other agencies such as, you know, um, social care, education, police, um, and, you know, we, we can learn quite a lot from 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 them as well so that's kind of what drew me to the specialty 
Yeah, it sounds like quite a varied specialism. So I guess like a typical day doesn't really exist, but sort of like what what do you find yourself doing a lot in that specialism? Um, I mean, I think it would, it, it depends on, so at the moment I'm a trainee, so it would um, depend on what I'm rostered to do that day. But in terms of the scope of, of, of uh, cases and things that we do, um, it could be... Um, uh, assessing kind of new referrals from uh, GPs uh, for children with developmental issues or concerns from their parents or school, um, you know, suspected kind of social communication disorders like autism or, you know, other neurodevelopmental conditions like ADHD. Um, and then we see um, children with kind of new neurodevelopmental issues like, you know, epilepsy, um, other kind of genetic, neurogenetic, neurometabolic conditions as well, just keeping an eye on their development. Um, and also epilepsy. I don't know if I mentioned that already. Um, and then um, also a big part of the work is um, children with life limiting um, conditions as well. So we sometimes do um, kind of visits in the home setting. Um, we do a lot of um, reviews in the special school setting as well to minimize disruption and, you know, getting the, the parents to, to bring their children with complex needs to the hospital or to the clinic. Um, and then another big part of the work, so neurodevelopment and neurological um, kind of conditions, uh, kind of life limiting conditions, and also um, those at risk of abuse um, or being abused or neglected. Um, so, you know, these include children in foster care, um, children referred by um, social services or the police um, with an allegation of, of um, kind of physical, emotional abuse or, or neglect and kind of having discussions with the other agencies to determine what's the best way to see them and actually most of the time we end up seeing them for what's called a child protection medical so um, kind of uh, reviewing them and making sure that they're healthy you know making sense of the allegations and also kind of doing a, a safety kind of risk assessment to see you know what's best for the child and the family going forward so it's it's quite varied um, but that's kind of what I I would say I would cover in a week, not so much in a day, but um, yeah. kind of in a week. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, that's quite a lot. And, you know, being in community pediatrics, you interact with more people than you would in a hospital setting, you know. So I guess like one of the the main or like the common things is dealing with, um, you know, relatives and carers and people who are very close to the patient. And how do you manage to break bad news to them in a way that's going to get you know the medical information the stuff that they need to know across but also balancing that with being really sort of tactful and empathetic is that something you had to learn how to do you know quite well are there certain things you need to remember or is it of more like emotionally driven um so I think I think for me it Again, it, it came quite naturally for me. I think early on in my career, I kind of realized how important um, good, effective communication is. And I think I'm preaching to the converted, like, you know, really, you know, empathetic, genuine, sensitive. Um, and that's kind of how I landed. That's how I kind of got into the specialties that I did, because actually I realized you do really need the time to spend with children and families. You need the patience and you do need a certain kind of manner and approach towards it. Um, but I think my answer to your question would be, uh, you know, kind of would, would have three, three prongs. I think, first of all, um, good information um, gathering is, is crucial. Um, it sounds a bit obvious, but actually you'd be surprised at how often this gets forgotten. So, you know, even the basics like reading up about the patient, speaking to professionals involved in the children and, you know, young person's care. Um, you know, finding out what's already been discussed, you know, the family's pre-existing understanding, knowledge about the child's care, um, their ideas, concerns, expectations, any kind of previous experience, religious, cultural beliefs, um, family dynamics, language barriers, and the list goes on. Um, so actually, it's really crucial to make sure you equip yourself um, adequately before you um, embark on that kind of um, encounter, per se. And then secondly, I would say, you know, speak to the child or the young person as you would want to be spoken to yourself. So, you know, if you were the patient or if you were a carer, you know, you would want the information to be tailored to you and your circumstances and your abilities and, and your preferences. And, you know, just 
trying to be as, as sensitive and really showing that you care. I think, you know, it's something that I don't think can be taught, but I think if you do give it a shot, people, you know, the families do sense that you care and quite often, you know, any underlying angst or, or tension can, can be de-escalated slightly. Um, and then I would say my third point would be the kind of logistical, practical consideration. So, you know, it's not an exhaustive list, but, you know, if you're breaking bad news and you expect that actually this is going to be quite a difficult encounter for, for the child and or the family, then, you know, just making sure that we are optimizing the circumstances as much as possible. So, you know, making sure there's a quiet room, you know, tissues if needed, appropriate written information, you know, an interpreter and an advocate for the family if needed, um, such as the bedside nurse, you know, or making sure that, you know, if you're a bleep holder or if you've got an on-call phone, making sure that actually you hand that over to somebody else. So, you know, the conversation can go uninterrupted. Um, and these are just a couple of pointers. Um, and I read a paper recently, actually, I presented it at our uh, journal club it when I was on my job in, in palliative care um, and um, I've got a really kind of good paper titled um, breaking bad news what parents would like you to know um, and it was published this year by Brewer et al and if you're interested I can send you the link but it's really um, it kind of drills in the the kind of key points that I think we should aspire to we don't always get right but um, it's it's a good reminder of, of what we should be aiming for in these in these um, uh, uh, scenarios. Mm. And you mentioned that you were, you know, part of your um, work was in palliative care. And you mentioned before that you you've worked in sort of like sexual offences and sort of things like that. So it's really intense stuff, especially when it's to do with kids as well. It's like you've chosen the most intense specialism. So how do you deal with that emotionally? Because there's obviously a lot of different really yeah intense stuff how how do you manage to de-stress and sort of remove yourself from that when you're not in the situation um I think I I I I mean it's been a learning it's been a steep learning curve for me and I think with time I have gotten better at at de-stressing and kind of coping with the um kind of uh emotional uh kind of emotionally taxing nature of the job um but I just try to remind myself you know um you know be kind to myself and actually acknowledge that it can be normal you know it is normal and experience it is normal and okay to experience um you know various emotions like stress frustration you know upset in response to what we face at work um and I just try to constantly reflect and talk about the impact of clinical work on my emotional well-being I think it's important to recognize that different people work in different ways. Some people, they have other ways of coping. But for me, what I've learned is actually talking about things and reflecting, actively reflecting on things really helps me to cope, make sense of the situation, make sense of my emotions and write, how do I move forward? Um, and, you know, what's helped me with that is actually, you know, I've got a, luckily got a very robust um, support network, you know, from uh, kind of personally, um, but also professionally as well. Um, but, you know, in terms of um, on the general front for health professionals, you know, there's an increasing um, uh, uh, increasing range of, of absolutely amazing support um, available to um, to uh, health professionals. Um, you know, you've got uh, clinical psychologists um, leading uh, clinical supervision. You've got established, um, you know, practitioner health uh, programs, which are independent to the hospital trust that you work in, which, you know, can provide um, practical and, you know, psychological support as well. And, you know, online forums and support groups are, you know, an absolute godsend as well. So I think for me, my, um, you know, a, a friend once told me a, a problem a problem shared is a problem solved, probably half solved. Um, but I think, you know, you can't come to any harm or be any worse off by sharing your worries with a friend or colleague. Um, so I think, so a long-winded answer to your question would be talking to people um, and, uh, you know, finding, you know, whatever works for you in life. So, you know, hobbies, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, for me, it's, you know, a bit of baking, a bit of, you know, telly, a bit of, um, you know, sometimes going out on my bike, not a motorbike, uh, a mountain <laughs> bike. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. What uh, what good stuff have you seen on telly? 
at the moment which you like to unwind to? Oh, um, it depends. I found out um, uh, I like to watch different things uh, when I'm at varying levels of stress or exhaustion. So if All I'm right. really tired or like it's a school night, then I like to watch something easy like, you know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Parks and Recreation, you know, just something really like relaxed and, and, and non-taxing. But if it's like a weekend, you know, I, you know, I love like thrillers, you know, um, Money Heist, Killing Eve, um, you know, Breaking Bad, you know, but yeah, I, I watch a bit of everything. Um, yeah. 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 I, li- I like that. That's the spectrum. You just like. <laughs> That's what I, I think. You've got to get actually. in the mindset, though. You have to be in the yeah. mindset to like have certain things. Don't you? <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I didn't quite realize that. Maybe I'm just a bit too attuned to what. Like I just, I just want to get my psyche just right. But um, that's something that I've noticed in in recent years. Like I tend to watch different things when, um, yeah, on, yeah, on different days, different phases of life, etc. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> so we've talked about the intense, emotionally charged side of working in community pediatrics. But what are some of the positive experiences that you've had working in that field? Ah. Oh, um, I mean, children are just amazing. Like, you know, I'm always, uh, you know, constantly in awe of, you know, inspired by learning from children and young peoples. You know, it's, you know, their physical um, and emotional resilience and strength that they often unknowingly demonstrate in the encounters, in my encounters with them is just, um, you know, quite quite significant. And, you know, this can be seen across um, the whole spectrum of illness, you know, from when they're well and stable to when they're very sick and stable, sometimes, you know, towards the end of their life. Um, and also in different settings, you know, seeing them in hospital when they're unwell, you know, in clinics and, and special schools when they're relatively stable and well. Um, and also, despite um, all sorts of adverse experiences and challenging, you know, psychosocial backgrounds, which I won't delve into. Um, It's just really quite remarkable to see how children and young people deal with, cope with um, these adversities. And actually there's so much that we can learn from them and and take with us going forward. Um, But I think there's, yeah, a lot of positive and rewarding experiences to to just give one. Um, And also the other thing I wanted to mention was that People working with children and young people, you know, these include doctors, nurses, allied health professionals, anybody in pediatrics, on the whole, they're genuinely just kind, sensitive, and they've got the child and the family at the heart of what they do. And actually to be able to work with these people, quite often, you know, it's, it's a privilege, it's a bonus, but also it often makes an awful day bearable. So, um, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's twofold. The children and the young people themselves but also the people that I work with on a day-to-day basis yeah I think it's always you know a lot of people are surprised how you know they say kids are resilient but I think they like they actually are like they they can handle so much but I guess like you know in when you want to protect a child you think oh they, they can't handle this or deal with this but they actually it's it's amazing I mean I've got a nephew growing up like now he's like two and a half and it's incredible like what he's learning and picking up so yeah, yeah I just find it amazing it's kids it's are, like, fascinating it's yeah. absolutely fascinating um and um it's not to say you know it's the easiest of experiences for them but um I don't know whether it's also to do with the developing brain as well you know in the first couple of years of life and um but it's they've just got a completely different um kind of not, not that they choose to have this mindset, but, you know, quite often children, young people, uh, you know, go through the most physical, physically awful things and also and or kind of emotionally, psychosocially um, awful situations as well. And they just they just cope and they manage. And, and really, there's yeah, there's so much to learn from them. Sometimes it puts kind of my problems and, you know, my um, kind of reflections in, in perspective as, into perspective as well. Yeah. So what was your experience like working uh, in the NHS in probably one of the most disruptive periods of, of our lifetimes, the past 18 months? What was the pandemic like um, for you? 
Um, so I must admit, my experience during the pandemic was probably quite atypical to what was um, portrayed of uh, NHS workers um, in the media. Um, so in the beginning, so March last year, um, I had actually started a pre-arranged um, sabbatical at a sexual assault referral centre in London, working with children, young people and adults um, based in London. Um, and at the time before that, I had applied to take this time out of my paediatric training because actually I wanted to you know, gain uh, experience in areas which I had an interest in, in terms of child safeguarding, you know, forensic uh, medical uh, legal work as well, but also the wider kind of social determinants of health. Um, so at the time, I had actually offered to be redeployed to the acute hospital services, um, but I was um, thankfully able to um, stay in my allocated posts within uh, sexual assault, community paediatrics and um, paediatric palliative uh, medicine during the pandemic. Um, and initially, I felt quite guilty um, quite guilty not contributing to the acute services, um, given that a lot of my junior colleagues, but also peers, had been redeployed. But quite early on, I soon realised, you know, how important the role of health was in terms of safeguarding children, young people and vulnerable adults. You know, it, the work, our work in that was absolutely unexpendable, even though it was, you know, not acute work or you know, uh, kind of life-threatening per se, um, there was a lot of work to be done in terms of the safeguarding aspects of vulnerable children and families. Um, and I think my main reflection would be, uh, my main reflection during the pandemic would be the importance of um, maintaining reach uh, and access of support services to vulnerable populations. And actually that huge negative impact of the disruptions of this to these populations if that makes sense yeah definitely I mean you saw during lockdown there were a lot of statistics you know because everyone was at home and instances of domestic violence were increasing and so you know those support services were even more needed I guess you know than yeah. they usually would um <clears throat> and yeah the pandemic just disrupted everything from people who were scheduled to have operations or you know wouldn't want to go visit the doctor and things like that I mean I had to go to the doctors and this was like after the first lockdown maybe even the second lockdown mm. and I was just like oh I don't really want to like go to the like doctor's surgery so yeah it's, it was a massive disruption but I guess yeah. it's interesting you say that you felt guilty at first but I, I can sort of yeah because I, I guess like the you know, it was all over sort of every outlet you could possibly imagine, sort of like, say the NHS frontline workers, there was definitely this narrative. And, you know, so I guess that's all people saw, but you don't really appreciate that. It's yeah. just so much more than that, but it's so essential. Like every part of, you know, the care is so essential. Yeah. Um, so what do you think of the you know, coverage of the NHS and how it was portrayed uh, and stuff in the media? How do you think the NHS was portrayed, but also the the science and the medical information of the pandemic? How do you think that was communicated to the media and portrayed through the media? Do you think it was done well or? Um, I mean, I must admit, uh, I don't think I'm... The best person to answer this question. I think given that I was not working in the acute services at the time, but also I wasn't working with the adult population day in, day out, where there were the most casualties um, at the time. But my understanding from speaking to my colleagues working in adult medicine was that despite a fair attempt uh, by the media at portraying, you know, the experiences of hospital-based health professionals. I think what was communicated by the media was, was perhaps really just the tip of the iceberg. Um, and also, you know, there was a, a there was an understandable focus and recognition on, on hospital uh, based health professionals, but actually colleagues in the community, such as GPs, third sector organizations, um, you know, other agencies were working tirelessly, extremely hard, you know, adapting with exponentially escalating demands and challenges and I personally I feel 
probably the latter group maybe didn't receive as much kind of positive uh, kind of media attention as it perhaps deserved. Um, but all in all, I think, you know, it was, it was, um, you know, it, it was, it was, it was nice to, to have that positive um, media attention, um, but at the same time, maybe not the most uh, representative of all of the professionals working for and within the NHS. That's, that's just kind of my, my personal opinion. Yeah. Mm, well, I think that's, that's one of the things that people don't appreciate that the NHS is so vast. It isn't just like one organization. It's an umbrella term for a lot of different organizations and a lot of different you know, areas and um, specialisms and sectors within it. So what do you, what do you think the NHS can learn kind of as a whole about communication you know both internally and externally from having this spotlight shone on it during the pandemic um this was the question that I really had to think about because I I must admit I found this question the most difficult probably because I also don't think I'm best placed to answer it because I don't really have much management experience but I've I think what I would say is I mean, my reflection, my reflections, or maybe what I think the NHS can learn from would be: firstly, the NHS on the whole has, uh, you know, really demonstrated how much it could achieve and adapt to with its valuable workforce and resources, despite what the pandemic brought about and also the pre-existing um, constraints. So I feel like all NHS workers should be proud of being a part of this and actually continue to build on this in the future. So that's kind of one kind of reflection or possible learning point I had. Um, And then secondly, um, being in the spotlight, you know, helped to, you know, explicitly demonstrate the support from the general public. You know, there were concessions, donations, volunteers, you know, to name a few. Um, And despite the current trajectory and uh, kind of future plans for the NHS, I really hope the NHS as a whole and all those working within it know that, knows everybody knows uh, knows that it has the you know majority of the public support and really uh kind of take advantage of that to continue building momentum and standing up for what's truly best for it you know there's no there's no kind of uh kind of one best option but you know what is collectively best for the nhs i think these are rather positive um kind of learning points i can think of but um of course there's always a, a not so Uh, kind of bright uh, side to it which I won't elaborate on (laughs) yeah no I think there's there's always things that can be improved upon isn't there there's not there's nothing that's perfect so the other thing I wanted to ask you about was the impact of the internet and social media on the healthcare profession because you're seeing now you know as a topical um, point is you know the vaccination the COVID-19 vaccinations people finding a lot of information to support their views um, against you know vaccinations for whatever reason there's a lot of information out there which you know can support anyone's view and you can just you just have to find it and then you know that's that's supported um, what you think and more broadly you know you will have people with you know googling their symptoms and you know i've heard of uh other doctors say these people come and say oh i think i've got this because they like web md'd it or you know and they don't have the sort of medical training to like find a perspective of mm. what else it could be so you know what sort of impact has this wealth of information and the means to you know communicate it really rapidly um what has it what effect has that had on healthcare? Do you think? Um, I do think so. I think overall, I would say the positives. My my view is that the positives do outweigh the negatives. You know, um, uh, patients, children, families have had um, you know increased enhanced access to information, you know, perhaps in the absence of um, kind of physical uh, 
support, you know, uh, support services in person during the pandemic. You know, they were able to find a bit of uh, information or reassurance um, via the internet as kind of like a holding measure. Maybe at times it wasn't the safest to do, but I do think, you know, the access to information is definitely a pro rather than a con. Um, but obviously the key, I think, is is moderation. You know, moderation in terms of, you know, the suitability of certain types of information and resources for various people, you know, the role of um, forums, which are maybe sometimes not uh, the most uh, scientifically accurate and, and so forth, and just recognizing the limitations of that. Um, I mean, you know, generalizing a bit, uh, you know, social media platforms such as Twitter have been absolutely, you know, has, has had such a huge presence amongst health professionals and organizations, as you know, you know, using it to kind of share updates, opinions, you know, stimulate like fruitful discussion, you know, and actually it's quite easy because, you know, it's quite convenient, it's in real time and you get through to quite a vast audience. Um, but also, you know, with the pros also come the cons as well. So other, you know, social media apps um, have been associated with an increase in, you know, online-based crime and sexual offences in children, young people, vulnerable adults as well. And actually with significant impact on their mental health and emotional well-being. So I think, you know, initiatives like, uh, you know, the new children's code, I think they also call it the age, age, age appropriate design code. Um, I think it was introduced last month and that will, you know, undoubtedly help to safeguard our adults of tomorrow as well. Just moderating, you know, what is available um, via the internet and via different apps um, will help to kind of uh, achieve that right balance, I feel. Um, and like I said, I think just now I do feel I do feel the um, benefits of uh, increasing access to the internet uh, do does outweigh the um, do outweigh the uh, pro outweigh the disadvantages of it. Um, and you know, platforms like Microsoft Teams and Zoom um, have really allowed professionals to you know communicate uh, and collaborate even more effectively than before. Um, and actually maintaining reach and support to children and families um, virtually. Whereas, you know, before, before the pandemic, actually, we were we were moving at quite a slow pace. Um, so it's been quite refreshing to see how the pandemic has propelled the NHS at light speed to adopt the, you know, various means of, you know, technology, new technology, and, and not even new, but, you know, various means of technology and software. Um, and I think despite the pros, I, also think it has, um, you know, highlighted the prevalence of digital poverty as well, and also the pre-existing very stark inequalities in health, but also socioeconomic um, uh, parameters, which have also been exacerbated by the pandemic. So actually also reminds us and, and reminds us how important it is to address the, these inequalities in our encounters and how to make uh, kind of care accessible to all. That's kind of my reflections. I've rambled a bit, sorry, but um, these are kind of my uh, reflections. Yeah, no, I think you've hit on some really good points as well, um, especially sort of, you know, we, when we think of like maybe the internet and online stuff, we think of maybe social media, but actually like the amount of technology that we've adopted over the past 18 months to allow communication to be really quick and especially in the NHS which has a reputation of maybe not having the most effective forms of communication internally maybe so I think that's it's you know there are positives in sort of technology that that the pandemic has brought on which is which is good I guess a silver lining um mm. and I'm intrigued because we we are about the same age i think so we you know we, we're millennials we've seen sort of technology evolve at such a rapid pace during, you know i remember being an undergrad and like being on myspace and you know having like a laptop tethered to like ethernet ports in in my halls so and and now we are where we are so what is your you know um how's technology influenced you changed you in terms of like your professional 
experience you know what sort of advances have you seen through your time in the medical profession which you've which is just sort of if you look back on you're like wow I I can't believe that that has come into play now like are there any like surgical things or like you know things which you could implement in the hospital which you thought you think oh looking back like 20 years ago or 10 15 years ago would be it's just amazing um I can think of two examples. Um, so first is um, the uh, uh, first, I mean, Grant, given that, you know, this varies across different hospital trusts in different localities where you work. But I recently, um, you know, came from a hospital trust whereby, um, you know, all forms of communication about the patient were all electronic. So rarely did I have to pick up a pen to write, you know, in the patient notes or, um, uh, uh, you know, write a prescription or anything. Everything was done electronically. And, you know, it was just an absolutely amazing software, you know, very seamless. You could uh, reach out to, to parents um, uh, through that, you know, parents have an, they can download an app which is integrated to their patient, to their children's um, healthcare notes. You can have virtual consultations on that software. Um, and actually, you know, for us having witnessed the changes and if evolving nature of the technology. Yes, we came from a point where, you know, we used to write everything down. We didn't really use computers that much. And actually, yes, it can be quite overwhelming, but I feel like if you do adapt to it and you just get on with it, it, it does, it does, you know, really save time. Um, and it does um, make things a lot more, more efficient, streamlined, um, seamless, uh, you know, less duplication of work. Um, and, you know, that's just one example, which I think, I, I just wonder why are not all hospital trusts doing that? You know, I know, you know, we, we previously alluded to the NHS being, you know, uh, chronically underfunded, under-resourced. But, you know, if we are able to, you know, find some money to invest in better software for ease of communication, you know, for me, that is a no-brainer. You know, you're saving, you know, you're saving uh, professionals' time. You're saving the family's time, um, and you're saving paper. You know, in in this era where we really need to be mindful of what we're doing to our to our climate. Um, so that's kind of one example I can think of. Um, and the second example I can think of is, um, you know, the uh, kind of uptake of virtual platforms to undertake consultations. So historically, you know. You know, rarely would you undertake a telephone consultation. You can undertake a telephone consultation, but generally speaking, you know, children, families, adults would come into hospital for their hospital appointments. And quite often, quite often, I, I say this loosely, they don't really need to be examined. You know, it's more, you know, what you glean from the history taking, from checking their medications, you know, from, from the chat that is the most um, uh that has the most impact on the management going forward. And actually the examination of the patient in front of you doesn't really change the management. Now, the uptake of virtual platforms, I really think if you are able to effectively triage which patients need a face-to-face -face appointment or a virtual appointment, you know, it, it, it's bound to save time. You know, it's 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 making things much more easier for the, the patients, for the families, especially those with really complex needs. You know, I'm talking, you know, they're fed via a tube or, you know, they're wheelchair bound or, you know, it, it you know, you can't get their child to go into a taxi. They need to have, you know, special adaptation, specially adapted transport to take them, you know, to and from their hospital hospital appointments. Um, so, what I'm trying to say is um, it's really uh, kind of highlighted the importance of effective triaging by the professional to determine really makes you think, do they really need a face to face appointment or can they do with a virtual appointment? And actually, the families I've spoken to, particularly the ones with complex needs and are relatively stable that don't need to be examined, uh, you know, regularly, um, actually, they can be seen uh, virtually via video and you know a lot of what you get via via history is often sufficient 
Um, and, you know, there's been really good feedback from from children and families I've spoken to, particularly in special schools and, and those with complex needs who really say, you know, video video and or telephone appointments uh, is something that really needs to be uh, kind of incorporated uh, within our, you know, how we deliver our consultations. Sorry, that was a bit long winded, but I hope you got the gist. Definitely. No, I, I mean, yeah, like I totally agree. It's you know adapting to the technology we have is just going to be so important to be able to care for people effectively yeah i guess and it's here to stay whether we like it or not you know absolutely there's there's uh you know i'm i'm not the most techno savvy person and i i must admit i find uh you know technology overall to be overwhelming but also i'm starting to realize actually it's here to stay and it does really have advantages and, um, uh, uh, you know, areas of, of making things more efficient. So, it, you know, we just we just need to we just need to. Yeah. I don't think <laughs> to embrace the word, it, but yeah, we just need to embrace <laughs> it exactly with 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 open arms. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think the most valuable thing you've learned? Um, what the most valuable thing you've learned is so far? doesn't have to be technological it can be anything what sort of life lesson do you think has be, has had the most impact on you um uh i think whilst we're talking about communication and perhaps in the context of what i do i would say um i would say i mean it's difficult to decide on one thing but one of the more recurring and probably most important themes has to be communication at all levels. Um, you know, for example, uh, you know, during a difficult encounter, often being uh, as genuine, you know, sensitive, kind as you possibly can will go a long way to help, you know, dissipate frustration and upset and instead, you know, facilitate good good rapport with, with the child and the family. And sometimes it's much easier said than done not to re react in an antagonistic manner when you're faced with parental frustration or anger which you feel is disproportionate but actually you know trying to be as understanding as we can can you know make progress with with the kind of parent uh carer kind of doctor uh, or professional relationship um and another example is how communication by you know effective and prompt information sharing and collaboration between, you know, families, professionals, agencies can really help to improve outcomes for children and families. So I gave an example earlier on about this, you know, absolutely amazing software connecting professionals, different agencies, other hospitals and families, um, you know, on, on one software. Um, so, you know, Examples would be, you know, standardizing IT systems, you know, softwares, uh, health record um, platforms, which is understatedly a huge work in progress, um, very variable across the country, but definitely uh, an area that needs uh, a lot of, of, of focus on going forward, I think. Mm. Yeah. So for any medical students or people thinking about going into medicine um, who are listening, what one or two things would you um what one or two tips would you give them about communication on sort of a practical level to sort of help them through their career medical career um uh i think from you know my experience working in different areas of pediatrics but also in sexual assault it's really 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 important to have a holistic all-encompassing approach um, to care and appreciate that actually there are often aspects of a child or an adult's life not presenting to the presenting problem not not relating to the presenting problem which will have a huge impact on their well-being and care so even when you know it, within medicine even when you're pursuing the most niche uh, kind of specific medical specialties it's absolutely impossible to shy away from and dismiss the huge role of the wider social determinants of health. And we really have to be genuinely empathetic and effective in our communication to help elicit and address those determinants of health and hopefully, you know, make a make a difference going forward. Um, I think for me, the key is 
yes, you know, you might need to be uh, 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 kind of maybe book smart or, you know, get the relevant A-levels, etc. But actually, I think empathy and mindful listening, particularly in the care professional, is uh, absolutely, you know, essential. Um, and actually, I've recently come across um, uh, the books um, as part of the Harvard Business Review um, Emotional Intelligence books like it's a, it's a box set um and they've got two books um one on empathy and one on mindful listening um and i would really recommend um anybody to read that because you know it's uh kind of a good mix of research by established people in the field but also you know practical pointers going ahead um in in the career that we choose to do but yeah i think my take-home points would be being holistic really you know uh holistic and attuned to um wider determinants of health and just being empathetic and kind and, you know, really listening. I think that's something we can all take away with us is to be more empathetic and kind. And on that note, I just want to thank you so much for joining me on this podcast because you've had like so little sleep because you were on call and I am so grateful to you be able to talk to you today so thanks so much Flo. Not at all it was um it was really lovely to um like I said you know preparing for the questions you know it was quite a thought-provoking process and I really uh, really enjoyed it and um it's just it's just nice to talk about and and reflect on on these matters and obviously you're lovely to to chat with as well so thanks oh, for having thank me. Thank you so I do want to give you the last word seeing as this podcast is all about you so what one thing would you like to leave people listening with? Okay. Um, I would say um, in all encounters going forward with whoever you come across, just be mindful about what other people have got on their plate. And sometimes, you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt, being mindful of what they've been through. Um, I think that that will go a long way and, and make a difference to everybody you come across. <laughs> was definitely preaching to the converted as she talked about how important effective communication is in healthcare. Her passion for the safeguarding and care of children and young people is so inspiring, and her three-point approach to the difficult conversations in providing this care shows just how invested she is in her patients. I was interested in the guilt she said she felt about not being in acute care during the pandemic. There's been a big spotlight on the amazing work our frontline workers have done and are doing in response to COVID. But we can't forget the incredible work of our healthcare professionals and allied services, who have continued to provide outstanding healthcare and support in an already stretched system. It was reassuring to hear how many trusts are embracing new technologies to make processes more efficient within the NHS. And I totally agree with Flo that spending time and money in the short term to adopt these new technologies can reap significant returns in efficiency in the future, whether that's saving time and streamlining processes in frontline healthcare, digitizing notes and research records in academia, or implementing smarter tools to handle workflow and admin in business. Flo also hit on a really important point in the way she deals with the inordinate pressures of her job. It's normal to experience emotions related to work, so actively self-reflecting on things is crucial in moving forward. In the fast-paced technological world we live in, it's okay to take the time out to reflect on today, so you can be at your best tomorrow. If you like this conversation, let me know. You can find more information about this episode by heading to the Mavu website, or you can see the actual conversation on our Pros and Coms YouTube channel. Just search for Pros and Coms and find our orange bubble. We also have an Instagram, so come and say hi at Pros and Coms Podcast. Or you can use the hashtag pros and cons to carry on the conversation on social media. Make sure you follow pros and cons on your favourite podcast platform to keep up to date with all the new episodes. And if you do like pros and cons, why don't you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so more people can find us. And of course, if you like us, share us with your pals. 